welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, glad to have you here. Uh, last Sunday morning, I started a series of messages out of um, one of the more unusual books in the Bible. Uh, it's a very gloomy, cynical and in places quite despairing book, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. Some people have questioned the value of Ecclesiastes and quite frankly, having read it, wondered why on earth it would be included in the sacred canon. We introduced the subject last week and we talked about the fact that Ecclesiastes is the autobiographical account of a man's search for what philosophers call summum bonum, the, the highest value, the, the meaning of life. The summum bonum has been the holy grail of Western philosophy for as long as we've had philosophy. People trying to work out what, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? And the man who's doing the searching in this book is King Solomon, King of Israel. Now, I won't go back over all that we covered last week, but sufficient to say that you have to understand that this search that Solomon embarks on is carried out within two very distinct spheres. There are two significant limitations in terms of Solomon's search. Now, the first limitation is in space. And by that I mean, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes and underlined every time you find the phrase under the sun, you will have done it almost 30 times. By the time you add under heaven and on the earth, you're well over 30, approaching 40 or 50 times. What you have to understand is this is a search carried out on a horizontal level without any vertical resources. This is life viewed from a strictly human perspective. There's no vertical dimension. There's no relationship with God. If you read through this book, you'll not find any thus saith the Lord. There's no divine revelation. This is a secular search for the meaning of life. Now, the second limitation is, it's, is a limitation in time. It is a search undertaken within the limitations of birth at one end and death at the other. There is no real clear conception in this book of eternal life. This is a, as in my life, as long as I live search. And what we saw last week is he comes to an incredibly despairing place. His dismal, depression, despairing conclusion is that any attempt to find the summum bonum, to find the meaning of life, is, is absolutely futile if it's done within those two spheres, in space and in time. I, I talked last week about C.S. Lewis's analogy of a fleet at sea. For a vessel or a fleet at sea to be successful, there are three things that are required. One, it has to keep in ordered formation. Two, all of the ships have to stay afloat. And then underneath that and undergirding that, and probably the reason for the other two things is sailing orders. Why is the fleet at sea in the first place? Solomon doesn't have an answer for that. He has no idea why he's at sea, as it were. There are no sailing orders. Life is pointless, it's meaningless, it's futile, and he comes to this incredibly despairing conclusion that there's no profit in anything that we do. In order to understand Ecclesiastes, you have to understand that it is primarily a book of questions. 
Solomon's conclusions, the answers that he does come up with, bounded, as I say, by these two limitations of space and time, are mostly, in my view, misguided. The answer to the questions that Solomon asks are actually found in the rest of the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament. And in many respects, Ecclesiastes is an introduction to the rest of the Bible. It's part one, the rest of the Bible is part two. If Ecclesiastes was the only book we had, if we didn't have the New Testament's answers to Solomon's questions, then we too would end up in an incredibly dark place. You know, ignoring the revelation of Scripture and choosing, like Solomon did so many years ago, to live under the sun, many of the 20th century's existential philosophers and artists and musicians have arrived at the same incredibly despairing place as Solomon did. I suggested to you last week that Ecclesiastes is a remarkable book. It's remarkably up to date, that its questions and its conclusions are very, very postmodern. That's why we've called the series Solomon Among the Postmoderns. If you look around, you'll notice that our culture is in the process of essentially retracing Solomon's footsteps. And we are finding ourselves in the same place and with the same conclusions that Solomon had or came to regarding the meaning of life. This is a book of philosophy. It's probably the only book of philosophy in the Bible. Now, I know that some of you probably just hearing that word kind of retract with inside and you want to say, you know what, I'm a young mum, I'm not interested in philosophy. I don't have that much time for philosophy. Or some of you other folk are just thinking, you know, there's more pressing things in life. Philosophy doesn't really affect me. I'd like to suggest to you, in fact, that you're wrong. To be human is to be a philosopher, and we all live by philosophy. Choosing not to think about philosophy is, in fact, a philosophy of life. If we think about philosophers at all, probably the picture that kind of we conjure up in our imagination is a pipe-smoking, unkempt individual sitting in some incredibly untidy, book-lined study in an Ivy League university totally removed from all that's real in life. Now, that, that might be reasonably accurate in some cases, but I want to tell you, for better or for worse, their ideas don't stay in the ivory tower. They make their way down into our general culture, and they come via art, via literature, via music. Uh, if you could put that um, screen up for me, please. There you go. The ivory tower doesn't remain disengaged and disattached from general culture. Let me kind of, if I can, illustrate how this process works by giving you some very specific examples. During the 20th century, there were a number of existential philosophers, men like Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Frederick Knightsey. These men went on a journey, and they all came to the same conclusions that Solomon had so long ago. They decided that life was pointless. Jean-Paul Sartre said, human life is meaningless, and man is a useless passion. His ideas didn't stay on the left bank of the Seine. They were picked up by authors and by artists, and this philosophical tide began to be expressed in their works. A man by the name of Samuel Beckett wrote an absurdist play called Waiting for Godot. 
It was, it was voted the most significant English language play of the 20th century. And in the play, two characters wait endlessly for somebody who has promised to come and meet them, but never arrives. And while there are numerous interpretations to the play, most seem to think it's a, a take on our loss of God, that he never turns up. He never arrives as he's promised, and the implications of that in terms of the meaning of life. Pulitzer Prize winner, author Ernest Hemingway's classic little short story called A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. He takes the Spanish word for nothing, nada, and he uses this word and writes from an incredibly nihilistic perspective. The word nihilism comes from Nietzsche. It literally means nothing, and at one point, Play, playing on the Lord's Prayer, he, he writes, our nada, who art in nada, nada be thy name. And on and on it goes down to the bottom where he says, hail nothing, full of nothing, nothing is with thee. Now you might be thinking, Don, that's absurd nonsense. Of course it is, that's the point. Life under the sun, lived on a horizontal level without any reference to God, ends up absurd. Ernest Hemingway couldn't live with his own implications and his own philosophies and took his own life. Art gets caught up in the same tide as literature does. The famous American artist Jackson Pollock took the idea of meaningless chance to his artwork, and he would set his canvases out, you know, Lie, lie them out on the floor, and he would develop mechanisms that would just let the paint drip out of cans just by chance on, on his canvas. Actually, they amusingly nicknamed him Jack the Dripper. <laughs> he commented, modern art to me is nothing more than an expression of the contemporary aims of the age we are living in. Absolutely chance. No purpose, no shape, no meaning. Pointless, meaningless chance along with many other artists and musicians. He couldn't live with his meaningless philosophy and took his own life. Music always follows art and literature. And whether it's Leonard Bernstein, The Beatles, or as I said last week, Pink Floyd, whatever your preferred genre is, many musicians at various times in various ways with varying degrees have gone down this road of saying life is futile, it's pointless. Last week I referred to Pink Floyd and I kind of did it somewhat comically, but um, if any of you wanted to follow through what I'm talking about, their album, The Wall, is worth listening to, even if it's only once. And for most of you, it will probably be only once. But, uh, but it's a cult album. It's an album that has a dedicated group of followers much like the movie The Matrix has. And in so many ways, it's much more than just music. It is a profoundly disturbing, despairing work of philosophy. As a wall of alienation and disconnectedness gets built up brick by brick. And the key character of this album lives in a nobody's home universe. And for those of you who know it, you know, at one point they sing, is there anybody out there? They're asking, is there anything out there that we can be related to that somehow this objective standard out there will give meaning to my life? And, and they can't find it. On one occasion he says, I've got a strong urge to fly, but I got nowhere to fly to. 
And throughout the album, phones are ringing, but nobody answers. Phones are ringing, and somebody answers, but the connection is cut off. There's a knocking that goes on on the door, but nobody answers. If God is out there, he's hung up the receiver. Now, aware that nobody's out there, or if they are, they're not talking, the key character turns inward. Perhaps if there's no objective meaning, he can find it by looking inwards, by turning to the subjective. And in a song called Comfortably Numb, he sings, hello, is there anybody in there? Just nod if you can hear me. Is there anybody home, he says. Seeking meaning in the inwardly subjective, though, yields no more results for him than, than his looking for the objective standard without, and it's all empty and purposelessness. And so he sings a song called Empty Spaces. What shall we use to fill these empty spaces? How shall we fill the final places? How shall we complete the wall? As Solomon did so many years before, the singer turns to materialism and the pursuit of pleasure, hedonistic pleasure. If the mind can't satisfy, maybe the body can, he says. And in search of more applause, shall we buy a new guitar? Shall we drive a more powerful car? What is it that will fill these deep spaces within me that are crying out to fly to something meaningful but can't find anything to fly to? It bursts from there into a song called Young Lust. And I don't think I need to put the lyrics up to give you an idea where that song is heading. Perhaps, he says, there is satisfaction, meaning, and maybe even transcendence in sex. This is, by the way, as we will see in a moment, so Solomon-like. And of course, it doesn't and cannot produce what we hope for. In fact, Proverbs 21 verse 17 in the message translation says, you're addicted to thrills. What an empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. Pink Floyd's character begins to unravel and stumbles on the edge of sanity. And in a song called Thin Ice, he says, if you go skating on the thin ice of modern life, don't be surprised when a crack in the ice appears beneath your feet and you'll slip out of your depth and out of your mind. And the song, gets, the, the album gets darker and darker and darker toward the conclusion where he begins talking about death and suicide. Two songs, Waiting for the Worms and Goodbye Cruel World. You know, this is a reflection of where the philosophers in their ivory tower were going. In fact, philosopher Albert Camus once said, the world is a pointless accident. The only question left for philosophers to discuss is the question and role of suicide as a way of ending the farce that we call life. And so you see it worked down through literature, through, through art, through music. The authors, the authors, the artists, the musicians, they take this philosophy to its logical conclusion. And by the way, the suicide rate among these people is three times higher than the national average. So in Ecclesiastes, Solomon the philosopher isn't just sitting in an ivory tower thinking himself into depression. He doesn't just argue, he experiments. He doesn't wait for authors and artists and musicians to explore the implications of his thinking. He does it himself. And he sets out on a sincere, diligent search for satisfaction and meaning. And his search and conclusions are so incredibly postmodern. Let me read to you. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Uh, it's a long passage, but, but um, you can read it in your own time. But 
starting from verse 12 of chapter one, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Pretty despairing and dark. And then he says, I will, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possession of herds and flocks more than any other who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and woman and many concubines, or as the message translation says, voluptuous woman for my bed, the delight of the sons of men. This guy tried it all. He ta- in this passage, he talks about two particular roads that he travels down, very, very commonly traveled roads as people look for meaning in their lives. The first is the road to enlightenment. He first of all pursues the life of the mind. He sought answers in the realm of human wisdom, of knowledge, of study, of research. He did, as it were, his degree, then his master's, then his PhD, and then he did another and another and another. He stacked doctorates on top of one another. He searched in history. He studied the rise and fall of empires. He studied biology and philosophy and logic. He sorted through ideas, both foolish ones and wise ones. He developed maxims and proverbs and he wrote songs. He became proverbial for his wisdom and his understanding. People traveled from the ends of the earth just to sit in his lectures. The Queen of Sheba, for example. He dissected life, but in doing so, he found that he desiccated it. He dried the life out of it. He picked the flower of life to pieces, petal by petal, and in doing so, he said, I lost the beauty. There was something that eluded me in all this. Listen, science, as good as it is, comes to a crashing halt when it tries to explain things that are beyond how and what. A scientific analysis of a mother's tears can describe it in terms of its physical and chemical structure. So much mucus, so much salt, so much water. But the stark realization is that's not a satisfactory or adequate definition of a mother's tears. 
And he realized this wasn't leading where he hoped it would. He came to the conclusion that the more he discovered in some respects, the less he knew. And today it seems like Solomon, our culture, we know more and more about life and in the same way, less and less about life. We know more about life and we seem less and less able to live it. And at the end of this road to enlightenment, he said, it's vanity, it's vexation. It's trying to shepherd the wind. He says, in wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrows. Now listen, these comments aren't intended in any way, shape, or form to debunk education. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. In fact, on the contrary, wherever Christianity has gone, it has started schools and universities. This isn't some kind of debunking of of schools or universities or higher education. It's simply to say that intellectualism does not hold the meaning or the answer for the quest of meaning. Listen, if the road to enlightenment was truly the pathway to meaning and purpose, then wouldn't the best, happiest, most well-balanced individuals on the planet be the intelligentsia of our societies? And if you're tempted to think that perhaps they are the most well-balanced people on the planet, then I suspect a little time in university common rooms would disavow you of that notion. Because without in any way wanting to put professors or lecturers down, they would be the first to say there's no less professional jealousy, there's no less insecurity, there's no less internal politicking, there's no less small-mindedness in those places than you find on the local parish committee or the local football club. And if you don't have the time to spend in a university, then can I suggest you sometime get hold of Paul Johnson's little book called The Intellectuals. It's a fascinating, intriguing study into the lives of some of the most famous intellectuals our world has seen, whose ideas have shaped Western civilization. And without going into the contents of the book, they are quite frankly as broken, as confused, as frustrated, as immoral, as dishonest as any group that you can pick from any other section of society. The road to enlightenment is not going to give you those sailing orders, why you're at sea in the first place. Later on in in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is to say, when I determined to load up on wisdom and examine everything taking place on the earth, I realized that if you keep your eyes open day and night without even blinking, you'll still never figure out the meaning of what God is doing in this earth. Search as hard as you like. You're not going to make sense of it. No matter how smart you are, you won't get to the bottom of it. It requires a thus saith the Lord. It requires sailing orders. It can't be done under the sun. Solomon realizing that the road to enlightenment wasn't taking him anywhere, and it wasn't that he just ventured down it a little way, he went to the end of it. He comes back and he goes down another road. Road to enlightenment, he now turns to the road of enjoyment. If perhaps the mind can't satisfy, maybe the body will. Let the good times roll. I tell you, it's certainly an easier road to travel down than the road of enlightenment. The pursuit of wisdom requires phenomenal discipline and effort. The road to pleasure is close at hand. He turns to pleasure because he has nothing bigger to live for. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he outlines his efforts and pursuit down this road. The first eight verses, he talks about the things he tried, the pleasures 
he invested in. In verse 9 through 11, he talks about his personal reflections on what he found. Solomon tried wine, woman, and song. Actually, I recall hearing a story of a CEO reporting back to a stockholders meeting. They'd obviously had a very, very hard year and the the stockholders weren't happy. And he got up to apologize for the company's poor performance. And he admitted there'd been far too much wine, woman, and song that year. And he made a solemn promise to cut out a lot of singing in the following year. (laughs) Wine, woman, and song. Verse two says, he pursued laughter and pleasure. They are actually, in the Hebrew, two different words and not simply two words saying the same thing. They're not synonyms. Laughter has the idea of completely losing your discernment, of going absolutely over the top. Tim Keller says it has the idea of an orgy. Pleasure, on the other hand, is a much more refined word. It has the idea of something that's aesthetically pleasing. One is whole, full-on, wholehearted party. The other is highbrow refinement. One is get smashed. The other is buy art and drink it expensive red wine. You know what? There is an uptown and a downtown approach to hedonism, and Solomon tried both. He experimented with pleasure, and it lacked nothing. He had the resources to go as far as he wanted, and as you read it, it's a veritable Disneyland of amusement. He found out from experience, as all serious hedonists do, the problem is the more you have, the more you need. And what titillates you at one level when you come back to it doesn't have the same effect. It's like relighting a candle that's burning. You don't ever go back and start up here. It's burnt its way down to here, so you start there. And, And pleasure works on the law of decreasing returns. You have to have stronger and stronger experiences to produce that same initial pleasure. And ultimately, it leads to boredom. Sometimes, bizarrely, it even turns to its opposite, the pursuit of pain and sadomasochism. Anything to relieve the boredom. Anything to fill the empty spaces. Solomon concludes that not only the road to enlightenment, but the road to enjoyment is a dead-end road. You know what? Presently, our culture is in a headlong pursuit of the things that Solomon has pursued and said, Don't go there. There's nothing there. We are retracing his steps and reproducing his conclusions. In our day, we have more things to live with and apparently less to live for than any previous culture in history. We are richer and more prosperous and we have increased the avenues of pleasure exponentially and yet we are more unfulfilled and more unhappier than any time in history. The suicide rates are far higher in the Western world than they are in the two-thirds world. Life apparently is getting better, and we are feeling worse. And we won't listen to the voice of Ecclesiastes that says, those roads are not the answer. We're like the person in Stephen Crane's poem. says, I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round he sped. I was distressed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never. You lie, he cried and ran on. That's our society. That's our culture. 
Solomon had the resources to pursue pleasure in ways that most of us can only dream of. And you know what? The worst thing about limited resources is that we believe the lie that if only we had more resource and could go further down that road, we would finally find meaning and satisfaction. Instead of saying there's something wrong with the path, we have the tendency of simply saying, I haven't gone far enough down it. Here's a man who had the resources to go right to the end, and he said there's still nothing down there. Solomon starts thinking about this, and he says, you know what, there's something wrong in the constitution of things. There's, there's something wrong in the way this world is made up. There is something of frustration and futility that's built into the system. Something is crook, crooked, something is lacking. And in verse 15 of chapter one, he says, what's crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking can't be counted. And a bit later on in the book, he actually blames God for this twisting and this lack. He says in Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has crooked, made crooked? Solomon's looking at this and thinking nothing satisfies. And then he thinks, you know, I think God has made it like this. He's twisted something and, and taken something and we can't straighten out what he's taken and there's no point counting things that aren't there, but something's wrong with the constitution of this world. You know what? He says, why did God make it like this? Why is it impossible to find satisfaction? You know, when Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction, it's probably the truest thing Mick has ever said in his life. You come into the New Testament, Romans chapter eight, and Paul starts to answer the preacher's frustrated questions. Chapter eight, verse 18 says, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility. It's the word vanity. This is the word that, Paul, that Solomon is using in Ecclesiastes again and again and again. And he's saying here, creation was subjected to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Maybe Solomon is right in saying it's twisted and God did it. It certainly seems from here that it's become subject to futility because God has allowed it. He says he allows it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom for the, of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why, why would God allow things to be twisted? and take away the possibility of us finding satisfaction. One can't imagine that that was the way it was in the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, God, having looked at the world, said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Before the fall, Adam and Eve weren't walking around frustrated, disappointed, despairing, saying, what's the point of all of this? The fall of man changed everything dramatically impacting the fabric of the way that our world functions. The constitution of our world was dramatically altered by man's disobedience. And in our fallenness, friends, we are so disordered in terms of the loves of our lives that we now seek fulfillment in things that are way less than God intended. And we readily and gladly settle for idols. We would be content with 
much less if God allowed us to be comfortable in that place. I think God, in his incredible mercy and love for us, given the sailing orders of greatness that he has for us as a people, says, I will not allow you to be comfortable with that. And the twistedness, he says, it's not gonna be straightened out. It's not gonna be straightened out until you find your sailing orders and it can't be done under the sun. You know, we, we all have moments of exquisite beauty and satisfaction, whether it's in a sunset, in a, in a song, in a moment when, you know, I, I, a couple of months ago, um, I, Beckett was at our place, our youngest grandson, and, and he was upset about something, and um, I, I said, give him to me. And I took him upstairs, and I started to sing to him. And I've got this little song that I sing to him and, and, and he just dropped off. And I lay down in our bed and Beckett was lying there and I'm just singing this song and I'm looking out the window and thinking, you know what? It doesn't get any better than this. Just in that moment, and I know you grandparents, you'll know it, and you mums, you know it as you look down on a nursing child and just in a moment, it might be a portion of a book and it bespeaks beauty and meaning, but it's so elusive. It comes and it goes. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them. If they are mistaken for being the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower that we have not yet found, the echo of a tune that we have not yet heard, news from a country that we have not yet visited. In those moments, you know, of incredible beauty, You've got to understand they're not in the thing itself. And if you worship the thing, it'll break your heart. It'll turn to an idol. God has put in each one of us a God-shaped vacuum. And nothing in the created order, as beautiful as God intended it to be, will ever fulfill you if you are not in relationship with him. If you're in relationship with him, all of those moments speak of an ultimate moment that is yet coming. And they are the foretastes of those moments. And when those moments turn sour and great sorrow hits our heart, nevertheless, we know these moments are coming and there will be beauty in the morning. But without a relationship with God, you're under the sun and it's all futility. Ecclesiastes 3.11 in the Amplified Bible says this, he, has also, he also has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds, a divinely implanted sense of purpose working through the ages which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. He wants us to know that the logos, the meaning of life, the teleos, the purpose of life cannot be found in things, whether it's education, whether it's money, whether it's sex appeal, whether it's a, you know, a flashy body with, with abs, whether it's everybody applauding you. Listen, they will applaud you one week, they will crucify you the next. If you don't believe that, ask the All Blacks. Just fleeting moments, never satisfying. The moments that satisfy aren't found in things. They're found in a who, 
not a what. And you read through Solomon's writings, and even in the midst of his searchings, he seems to intuitively recognize that the answer to life's questions are found in a person, not in a thing. And I'm going to just throw up a few scriptures. I won't read them all, but you can, you can go through and underscore the phrases like, who knows? Or down the bottom on the right there, I think, at least in my iPad, for who shall bring back to see what will happen after he's gone? Not what will. Not, not what pathway will, but who is it that? In Ecclesiastes 6, 12, for who knows what is good for man? Ecclesiastes 8, 7, he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him? Ecclesiastes 10, 14, and who can tell him? Solomon seems to intuitively be aware that whatever it is he's pursuing, if it's a thing it can't answer to his heart's cry, it has to come from a who. And that who is above the sun. Relationship with God is the only way we will get answers to why questions. Listen, God is not a spoil sport. It's not that he's anti-education. He says, pursue the life of the mind. Let your mind be renewed by the spirit of God, by the working of the word. Paul was a genius, as was Daniel, the people of faith don't have to be, you know, don't have to turn their back on education. And the people of faith don't have to turn their back on pleasure either. God has intended a life of pleasure for us. But he just says, you can't find it under the sun. You go after illicit pleasure and it's like trying to pick up mercury off the floor. It will constantly elude you. He's not a spoil sport trying to take pleasure from us. He's trying to introduce us to that which is truly and lastingly pleasurable. He's intended pleasure. He's intended wisdom, but they are found in him and not in something under the sun. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. He's not some cosmic spoil sport wanting to take from you. He's saying, I want to introduce you to the things that your heart longs for. You are made to fly, and in me, there is somewhere to fly to. Our world is in disarray. There's this, like I said last week, this elephant in the room. What does life mean? And we can't answer the question. And we've decided the best way to hide elephants is introduce so many rats and mice into the room that you no longer can see the elephants. So there's rats and mice everywhere, diversions, something to fill the eye, fill the mind, fill the body, pleasure, everything, and, and absolutely nothing. And Solomon says to our culture, I've been down the roads that you are traveling down. I'm an expert in that which you are dabbling in. I'm telling you, it's a no exit. Don't go down there. It's vexation of spirit. It's like trying to shepherd the wind. You'll never get it. When Bob Dylan said, how many roads must a man walk down? And then said, the answer is blowing in the wind. He was saying, we don't know. We've got no answers. Friends, they're in the scriptures. They are to be found in a relationship with the one who has made this world and has made you. And he's got sailing orders, not just for mankind, but for you as part of that fleet. And he says, be in relationship with me. 
I'll introduce you to those things that are lastingly and truly joy-filled and pleasurable. It won't always be easy because this world is broken. It's crooked and there are things missing. But I want to tell you a relationship with Jesus somehow gives us the strength to go through these things that would otherwise be an unbearable weight of meaninglessness that would crush us. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done that the Logos stepped into our world under the sun world. The word became flesh. The Logos became flesh and the Logos revealed to us the sailing orders of the Father a process of redemption that starts to make us seaworthy and a community to travel with toward his purpose. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.